he's a real blessing, loves the Lord. He's been all over the world serving the Lord in missions. I just think uh, there's very few pastors that have the same passion as he does. And so without any more, I'm going to invite Billy from Hatterside Fellowship on up to share with us. Uh, you guys don't have to clap for me. I'm a nobody. So uh, the deal is, guys, that truly is it. I live on a tiny island, 30 miles out in the ocean, and, um, and I really am a nobody. And so if we're blessed tonight, if you get your podium, I don't know what your pastor does. Has he got the whole scriptures memorized? You can't possibly put notes up here and um, in your Bible. So uh, I'm going to use somebody's stand here. If you want, you guys can turn to Joshua. We're going to... A couple of things real quick. You know, I do live 30 miles out in the ocean. It's a, it's a pirate land. That's how it was established. A rough place to live, hard place to exist. A few years back, um, you know, first of all, uh, my buddy Ken Graves, he always says, oh, we don't have men retreat. You know, he will never call anything he does in history. We don't have men retreat. We have conferences, you know. So we're having a men's conference, you know, especially with the title that we have for this thing. The deal is, guys, yeah, a few years back, I was out on the island. I first moved there. About 20 years ago, and my wife was uh, here in Richmond. My in-laws lived, lived in uh, Verina. And uh, it was one of the bad storms. And at that time, I had a little shack of a house, real tiny place. And uh, we always boarded up all the windows, right? And at the time, I was having to work four and five jobs because I wanted my wife to stay home and homeschool our kids. So, uh, you know, I would send her up here. I would stay on the island hoping for ministry opportunities after the storm hit. Well, we had the whole place boarded up, and I loved those times because I got to sleep, right? And so we had this massive storm. It flooded the place, Bonnie. You couldn't see grass anywhere. I lived right on the water, and I was laying in bed, and I got the idea, you know, the last day, you know what, I'm going to do something cool for my wife. I'm going to paint all the ceilings of this crummy house we live in. I'm going to uh, pull everything off the wall. So I painted. Not real bright to have your house completely, you know, closed up in paint, right? So I was stoned. It was like the old days, right? I just didn't realize it. So I'm in there. I'm lit up, man. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to clean the whole house for my wife, right? So I go to the closet. I get a diaper. I go and I get the, uh, the lemon pledge in the yellow bottle. And I'm in there and I'm putting all this pledge on everything. I'm wiping everything. And I, I'm going, dude, everything in the house is smeared up and messed up. What is the deal? You know, I, I keep... I'm thinking, well, I, and I look, I'm thinking, oh, man, who put a dirty diaper back in the closet, right? So I throw that one in the thing. I go get another diaper. And I'm like 4 o'clock in the morning now trying to get the house back together. The piano's all smeary. The hall tree's all smeary. Everything's a mess. The mirrors are messed up. And then finally around 4 o'clock in the morning, I look at the yellow can of Pledge, and I realize I have a yellow can of starch, you know? So like any hurricane that hits my house, the house may blow down, but the furniture will be like this, dude, you know? And the deal is, in so many ways, that's the way the gospel is being presented today. It it looks like what you thought it was supposed to be, but it doesn't do anything but make a big, smeary mess at the end of the day. And it messes up people's heads and their ideas about what Christianity is, so that when any man comes and preaches truth, he gets beat up on because he's too hard, he's too nasty. What is your attitude? Because we have been shaped and formed and compressed by the culture we live in. And so, you know, as I come, look, I, I, I have a vile past, abortion, violence, you know, drunkenness. I mean, you name it, guys. I was molested when I was a kid. It shaped my whole life. I became a mess when I grew up. I was molested by a lady one time down in Texas. We were military kids. And then we moved all the way to Canada and got messed up by there by a man. My life was, it was shredded. I came from a non-Christian home. It was a nasty 
violent mess. And if this king would save somebody like me and give me life and call me to speak for him, listen, guys, if you don't like what I have to say tonight and I don't see you tomorrow, that's okay. I'm going to stand for this king right to the last breath I have. Amen? I'm going to finish like that. And I'm here to inspire you. We, we talked, you know, Tim and I, uh, the last time I asked him for the title of the men's retreat, he said, well, the, the first time I asked him, and I don't do this but one time, the first time I asked him, oh yeah, guys, worship team, thanks. I, for, I forgot to thank you guys. Good job, man. Appreciate it so much, guys. Thanks so much for the work. First time I asked your pastor, you know, I said, hey, dude, what's the title of your retreat? And he said, the man on point, right? So then I call him the next time. What's the, hey, Tim, just want to make sure I am got this right. Well, it's the point, man. And finally, he told me it was taking the point. And, and that's not even the one that's on your bulletin. And I thought, dude... You know, the last time I had these messages, I thought the next time he changes, it's going to be uh, the man being stuck with a point. That's what, you know, I was like, I'd had it with him and his title, right? So when we think of the man on point, for most any American, the thought brings to mind that kind of military, you know, special ops mindset. And uh, I grew up as a military kid. Uh, my dad was awarded the Bronze Star for his service in Vietnam. Um, we grew up in a very strict military home. My dad never taught normal to us. He, he would bring us in when we were arguing. He'd sit us on the couch, all of us. My wife didn't believe it until she heard stories about it. Boom, boom, boom. We will function as a family unit. You know, that's how he talked all the time. And that's the way our life was. I, was a, I lived on base my entire life. It's the only life I knew. But in all honesty, guys... I did not have any real knowledge when he gave me the title of special ops, you know, leaders, training, or duties concerning being the man on point. You know, I'm an old man now. I had heart surgery last year, right? And so about the toughest move I have these days is like, it goes like, oh yeah, that's, that's as tough as it gets. So, you know, before I started riding, I called a friend of mine because I didn't want to come off with some cheesy man on point sermon that I knew nothing about. So I called a friend of mine who served with the 20th Special Forces. It's a, it's a secret organization carrying out classified operations and missions. And this fellow had been on numerous missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, finding and eliminating counterinsurgency cells and terrorist cells, uh, taking out these responsibilities for constructing uh, situations for the use of IEDs to kill our, our unsuspecting troops and our allies. And he, doing this through sniper missions at night, he talked about, or entering strongholds and crushing the opposition with extreme prejudice. And so this guy knew what the deal was. So I took time to interview him for quite a while. He said sometimes his missions involved tracking down and eliminating permanently those whom he called IED money emplacers, those who were financing the placement of IEDs. And he's been the man many times taking the point he talked about on many of these missions. So after I talked to him for a while and hearing many of his stories, there were some characteristics that I think are inherent in any man willing to take the point. Well, first of all, a man who takes the point, a man who's on point, must be a man of proven courage, one who is willing to die for the protection of those following his lead and for the completion of the mission given to him by the commander. The second thing, he must be a leader. His job is to find and point out dangers to those who are following his lead. Putting himself in danger as the first to be injured as he looks for dangers and points them out 
and eliminates them. And then third, he is a man who recognizes his leadership position and responsibilities. He has to know where he is leading others to, what's the objective, and what's the destination. He knows the place uh, of his commander, and, willing, uh, and, he, and he will carry he'll, the plans of his commander. Excuse me. He knows the plans of his commander, and he's willing to carry them out at all cost. He is the eyes and the ears of the team, if you will. He knows when to stop. He sees all of the things that are out of the ordinary. When moving, he dictates the pace and the flow and the activities of the team that he's leading. Many times he's a tracker. It was another part of the whole man-on-point mission, watching the trail for signs of the enemy in order to track him and eliminate him as a threat to those following his lead. And this fellow told me that point man is most often an aggressive fellow who will actually fight you to be the point man, despite the danger and the fact that he's going to be the first one shot. The fourth characteristic is that the point man understands he is leading the team, but he's not the commander. Considering those attributes, guys, those characteristics of the man on point, I think it's fairly easy to find biblical models of men who took the point. You know, Moses, Paul, Stephen the martyr, Jesus, absolutely. And some we're going to mention in greater detail in the next sessions. But let us first start with a man that definitely took the point in every way. And that man would be Joshua. We see the uh, aforementioned characteristics of the point man in Joshua's life. He was that aggressive man of courage, willing to put himself in the, in the fray. We all know how Joshua, along with 11 other men, were sent out. You guys know the story, right? Everyone here has a little bit of knowledge about the Bible. They were sent out on a 40-day reconnaissance mission into Canaan land by Moses. And all 12 men returned telling of fortified cities with walls to the sky and giant people, along with the fact that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And 10 of the 12 are, are, who saw the same thing the other two saw, right? You know the story. They're afraid and bring a message of fear and an inevitable defeat if they try to invade this land. And you remember uh, how Joshua, having seen the same giants, the same fortified cities, says, let's believe our God, let's carry out his command, let's take the land. And Joshua gives his inspiring words of victory and courage in Numbers chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. He says this, if the Lord is pleased with us, then we will bring, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And notice, guys, he makes a conditional statement right off the bat. If the Lord is pleased with us. We don't like conditional statements anymore because somehow it interferes with our false sense of grace in these times. Like we have to do something to actually be on the Lord's side. Well, we do. It starts with repentance. And it goes down a long list of obedience, which we'll talk about later. And notice, guys, he displays his knowledge, even while he's under the leadership of the point man Moses, his superior, he displays his knowledge of where the power for victory will come. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. 
None of the arrogance of many of today's teachers and speakers who would rely on the authority of the believer, right? Or of claiming and confessing as a source of spiritual power that can manipulate our environment as though we ourselves have some kind of deification ability without, you know, a superior commander. Listen, Joshua was a a man of courage and faith, a, a recon man who saw things different than others based on his faith in God and his willingness to put his life in the battle and action of proving that faith. He didn't have Saul's faith. You remember Saul? Because there's a whole lot of guys in the church that have Saul's faith. You know what I'm talking about? Here's my armor. Here's my faith. You know, I'm not going to wear it, but you go right ahead, David. Put it on and go, for the, to, to, you know, go to battle. How many of you guys had guys like that in your life? Oh, yeah, you know, man, you just quit your job, Tim. You know, they're working a, a you know, $65,000 a year. Dude, what's wrong with you, man? Have faith. And yet God called them years ago to be a missionary or a pastor or a leader, and they're still working a job waiting for, like, the fleece thing or something. I don't know. See, he, he, we have this situation with Joshua. He obviously had the second characteristic my special ops friend spoke of. Leadership. Back in chapter 14, he didn't recant his desire to take Canaan when the other ten spies in the congregation of Israelites wanted to stone him and Moses and Caleb and Aaron. And I don't need to expound on that in detail. It is sufficient to point out that in chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb are the only two adults of the Israelites that God says will see his promised land. Guys, in Numbers 27, Moses cries out to God for a point man, basically. This is what he says. Then Moses spoke, Numbers 27, 15 and 18. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. So guys, Think about what Moses cries out and God gives him a man to lead them out and a man to lead them in. A man to lead them out of the desert and lead them into the promised land. And notice the leadership style. It is to be a shepherd. I think that's huge. So God appoints Joshua leader. That's enough said. That's enough said. That's the biggest endorsement you get. And earlier we said the point man recognizes that he's not the supreme commander. He's a man given orders and plans for success, instructions on what dangers will bring failure and what actions will bring victory. A man who communicates with his uh, superior commander and then implements those plans as he leads others. And we see this from the very moment Joshua takes the point, guys. If you're with me, Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, it says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All of the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give the people 
uh, you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all of the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Guys, the commander speaks to the point man, a man of already proven courage. Amen. You do under, I mean, this guy has courage. You need to understand that because a lot of you guys have some courage. Joshua was a man known of courage. This guy was ready to jump right into Canaan and go for it from the beginning when no one else wanted to go. And yet three times in three verses, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Verse eight, be courageous. Verse nine, I have commanded you, be strong and courageous. Well, what that tells me, guys, several things. Though Joshua was a man of proven courage, he was about to face some things in this conquest that might strike fear even in his heart. His faith might be shaken. Verse 9, God says, I have commanded you to be strong and courageous. I'll tell you, let's just really be straight up with each other, right? Personally, you know, I have rappelled off the top of cliffs with no belayer. I've jumped off those things. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to Raven's Roost where the army trains. But a buddy of mine, the first time I ever learned to rappel, dude, I went over the side sick in my stomach because I was so afraid with nobody belaying. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just told to hold the rope like this and like this. And we rappelled down that thing, swinging into each other, knocking each other down. You know, I've jumped off of waterfalls and paid the price for that stupid thing on one of our retreats with our kids. I had to super glue my foot back together for a week. And then... Uh, you know, I've served some huge swells, and I've also, you know, been in squatter camps in South Africa. In some ways, I'm a pretty, like, go-for-it kind of guy, but I have always been afraid of the dark. Now, you know, I, I'll tell you straight up, even when I was a deputy and I had a gun, I was afraid of the dark. That's a real problem when you're a cop, amen, you know? And, and, and I'll tell you what else, I don't walk on the beach at night. I am convinced there are monsters in there that no one knows about. And dude, if they're ever going to snatch you, it's going to be at night when you're out there walking and praying. I don't pray at the beach at night. And God could command me all day long. Billy, I command you, be strong and courageous and walk on the beach. And I'd be like, God, you can command me until you take me home. And I'm going to be afraid of the dark. It will remove that same fear inside. But see, God knows, he, he knows that. So if he commands me to be courageous, guys, It must be a call to take action regardless of what's in my heart. It must be an act of my will. And I don't want to get sidetracked because I don't want to keep you here any longer than what I have planned. But I didn't come up to Calvary Chapel, Richmond, to preach some fluffy Calvary Chapel sermon. And and, and you ain't giving me a dime. I I, I just got back from New York. I don't care where I preach, where I go. When I was in Maine, I won't take a dollar out of your church. You're not giving me anything. 
I didn't come here for an honorarium to get any pay. It's not that I'm against guys getting that, but for me personally, I come with a mission. I come to stir up a few guys who would have enough guts in the last days to say, you know what, I am not going to be shaped by this culture. I am not going to let Jesus Christ be shamed by those around me doing things and saying things that are anti-scripture. I am going to stand for Jesus Christ with courage, and I may be afraid. Because look, you don't think I'm afraid coming here? I'm looking at a bunch of yuppie guys in Richmond, dude. I live on an island so far removed from reality now, you know? You guys are smart guys. I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm a moron. You know, a surfer. Yeah, I'm nothing. And I'm always afraid. But I didn't come here for any other reason than to stir you and to move you and motivate you in these last days. And God commands this to Joshua. Verse 5, God tells Joshua, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not forsake you or fail you. Now, i got to be honest. If I was Joshua, I would say, as you were with Moses, he ain't even here. I don't want you to be with me like you were with Moses. You know? Joshua could have said, like, Moses, he didn't make it in. But God never failed Moses. Amen? What does it remind us of? Is the fact that our actions that are not in keeping with God's heart will have horrendous consequences in our lives. Nothing has changed. God didn't fail Moses. Moses failed God. And guys, it, it hasn't changed. We're in this New Testament false grace era where people think they can do and live any way they want to, and there's no consequences. I got news for you. The only definition of grace in the Bible is Titus 2.11. You read it. The grace that has saved all men teaches us to say no to ungodliness in this present age. It doesn't say it's a warm, fuzzy blanket to throw over people who want to be sinful and excuse their lukewarm, apathetic mediocrity. Amen? Already I'm losing you. Okay. It'll just be me and Tim in the morning. God makes that point in his overall standing orders for success to Joshua. Verse 7, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. The word of God should dominate our speech continually, guys. Continually. You hardly meet a man like that anymore. You know, stupid statements are made like, well, so-and-so is just so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. I have yet to meet anyone like that. It's an ignorant statement. Paul told the Corinthians that when he was among them, do you remember what he said to them? He says that he determined to know nothing among them except what? Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ, my do-boy, my Santa Claus, my butler. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, they, the Jews hated it. And the Gentiles thought it was moronic. It's, it, the cross is the message of the power of God unto salvation. But everyone else thought it was stupid. But Paul says, it's the only thing I wanted to know. And he's in the middle of Greek society and he's an intellectual. Not culture or philosophy or religion or science. Not surfing or basketball or halo or position or cars. No, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's the price that was paid for a loser like me. God tells Joshua, let my word dominate your speech. And then God says, let it dominate your mind. 
Meditate on it day and night so that when you speak, you will sound very spiritual and righteous and knowledgeable, right? No. Meditate on it day and night so that when you wake up in your bed, when you kiss your wife, when you eat your cocoa pebbles, I don't eat that yuppie type cereal, I like cocoa pebbles, when you make love and when you're in a dispute, when you're in the washroom or the heat of the battle, when you're drifting off to sleep day and night so that you may be what? Careful to do all that is written. Wow. In it, for then you will be prosperous and then you will have success. Guys, the key to success, stated in two verses back to back, is that ugly profanity word of our time called obedience. A term that has become Like I said, a a word of profanity in the modern religious climate. A word that in the current church equates to legalism and Phariseeism and old school religion. Yet Jesus, our King, our Savior states, it is the absolute definitive expression of real love towards Him. John chapter 14, verse 15, and just a few verses later, verse 21. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then verse 21, just a few verses later, again he says, he who, knows, or he who knows my commandments and keeps or obeys them is the one who loves me and is loved by my Father. And then you go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-5, through 5, it makes it crystal clear. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Verse 5, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected by this. And only by this do we know that we are in him, meaning that we know we are Christians. is by obedience. I, I tell guys, all, don't tell me that you're a Christian and you disobey the word of God. You're living with your girlfriend, you're getting drunk, you're being stupid with your life. You're apathetic and lukewarm when you've been called to carry the gospel of a king to a world that is going to rot and fry in hell for a million years and cry out, Lord, just give me a drop of water. And at that point, it's just begun. Young teenage girls, young teenage boys. Why? Because we are so busy being graceful and kind and gentle. Listen, guys, Joshua is told, this is your key to victory. This is what will give you the land of Canaan, a land that represents our life of salvation. You do realize that Canaan does not represent heaven. You get all these silly Southern gospel songs that were written. Are there any Southern gospel fans here? (laughs) Praise the Lord, man, because I I will. Well, okay, I won't say too much then. I don't want to offend you too hard. It's just that I think it's demonic. Anyway, I was just, (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Anyway, so here's the deal. You know, all these silly southern gospel songs about Canaan land, like it's heaven. No, Canaan's not a representation of heaven. Canaan is a representation of our life and salvation. Remember, when you went into Canaan, there was evil things all over to conquer and take control of. There was danger in Canaan. There won't be danger in heaven. There won't be enemies in heaven. We won't have to conquer in heaven. You do get the picture. Canaan is a picture of salvation because though we stand right now in the promised land and we are in Canaan land right now, we're still fighting enemies. Amen? So let's not confuse the issue here. So, so God tells Joshua, obedience is going to be your success in, in Canaan. And the Word of God tells the New Testament Christian, obedience is everything. It is the key factor to success in our land of Canaan. 
And so the point man for God must be a man who is obedient to the commands no matter what those commands are. And guys, Joshua was that kind of man. So quick review. We know that at every point of success, Joshua had been speaking to God and carries out God's plan, right? Crossing the Jordan, battle of Jericho, second battle at Ai, the battle with the four kings over Gibeon, and so on and so on. And when he moved without seeking God's con- his, his counsel, they always made errors. Ai, the first time, they lost the battle to a, a lesser army. The covenant with the Gibeonites was something they were forbidden to do, and he did it anyway because he didn't seek God's counsel. You go back and read it. Joshua obeyed, though, when he, when he sought God's counsel and got the orders. Chapter 3, verse 8. Joshua is told to have the priest take the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River at flood stage and stand in the midst. Do you realize what a risk that is? Do you realize how crazy that is? Did you ever watch, what was that movie? Uh, come on, help me out, guys. Uh, yeah, Indiana Jones. What's the name of the first movie? I, I, I'm a spiritual guy. I don't watch movies. So I knew you would know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Raiders of... <laughs> Lightning Rod. Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And so, you know, the whole idea was that if you had the Ark, you could go into battle and be victorious, right? And so, you know, to take the Ark, man, I mean, think of what, what's at risk. You know, ahead of the people, the, the ark, the most tangible, constant, visible reminder of God's presence. And to walk it into a raging river, risk losing the ark. You know, it's kind of that attitude of like, you know, uh, having to have the best church building and sanctuaries. You know, d- don't risk it. Don't give, you know, don't give to VOM or, or GFA like you're doing and risk losing it. You know, don't take a risk. Joshua obeys, and the river parts, and the people cross. The river closes up behind them, and now they're trapped between the raging river and Jericho. There's no turning back. The first fortified city is right there looking at them. And they're camped at Gilgal, not only with their army, but with all of the women and the children and a multitude, a sea of followers, in eyesight of Jericho. And God tells Joshua, you know what he tells him to do next, right? Yeah, remember? circumcise his army with flint knives. Sharp rocks. Dude. Joshua's not a surgeon and he's 80 years old. I mean, can you imagine being part of Joshua's army? You know, he calls you together for a discussion of the next tactic and strategy for taking the Canaan land. And there he stands with a sharp rock, his hand shaking. Gentlemen, line up. You know, dude, no. Hey, hey, hey. And no wonder God told Joshua to be strong and courageous, right? How would you like to tell your entire army that in a place of danger, a place where there's no escape, that you're going to uh, incapacitate them for your entire army for several days by doing delicate surgery with a sharp rock, you know? I mean, really, guys? You know, nothing about that plan makes any kind of sense. You know, why didn't we do this on the other side of the Jordan? Why not after we conquered Jericho? You know, what if the guys on the walls of Jericho, it's not that far away, you know, hear all the men screaming, ah! you know, I would attack. That's a good time to attack. You know, all the guys come out, you know what they'd come out walking like, right? It's time, dude. Nobody can hold a sword in their cloth. And what if you're like man number 52 in line? You know, you've heard like 51 other guys, ah! 
And Joshua's getting tired. His eyesight's not so good. You know, the deal is, let me leave it alone. The deal is Joshua obeys. And then the battle plan to take Jericho, marching around the fortress for six days. I mean, does, guys, have you ever read that and just thought how silly and stupid it would look? You march around, you know, like you're playing musical chairs, being laughed at by the enemy from the walls, looking silly, blowing horns, and bringing the walls down on the seventh with a shout. Doesn't, it doesn't sound much like special ops tactics. And so Joshua, you know, he obeyed his orders. He, he sought out the plan of his superior and his commander, and he had every characteristic of a point man in doing it. In chapter 6 of Joshua, God gives battle instructions to Joshua for taking the fortress at Jericho. In verse 17 and 18, though, and you need to look at this, chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, God tells Joshua that he and his army are to take nothing for themselves from the city. They are to take no spoils for themselves. The city and its spoils are under a ban. Now he's going to let them have everything at Ai, but here he says nothing. It's kind of a first fruits thing, I think. And in verse 18, God tells Joshua, and you need to look at this, that if they take anything from the city, that the camp, plural, of Israel will be made accursed and bring trouble on it, meaning the whole camp. And so you all know the story. Joshua leads God's army according to God's plan. The city of Jericho is conquered. Chapter 6 finishes with this statement. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. And so we come into chapter 7, verse 1. And it says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. One man takes items under the ban. One man named Achan. But look at the end of verse 1. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Notice it doesn't say, and the Lord's anger burned against Achan. And if we had time to read on, we would find Joshua attacking a much weaker city uh, called Ai, right? A city Joshua felt was not worth sending the whole army against. A light work, you know, it was nothing as far as in comparison to Jericho. And the results of the battle, you guys know it, right? The army of God gets routed. 36 men in Joshua's care are killed. The only Israelite casualties recorded in the book of Joshua in this conquest of Canaan. And those who study the book of Joshua know that for whatever reason, overconfidence, whatever, we have no record of Joshua speaking to God prior to sending these men to take Ai and getting defeated. But guys, it wasn't battle strategy Joshua needed. Because when God sends Joshua back, he basically uses the exact same strategy they used the first time. What Joshua needed to know was that there was hidden sin in the camp and that God's anger was burning against his army. So many messages, I mean really, there's a million messages that could be preached from Joshua chapter 6 and 7. But this brings me to the whole point of this message. Doesn't mean I hate when pastors say this because you think, dude, I've endured you for 30 minutes and you're just starting? That's not what I'm saying. It simply brings me to the title of this message and the point of this message. When no one takes the point. 
The fact that God is angry with the sons of Israel, a plural, collectively, over one man's choice and opportunity to sin, reminds us that God does expect us to be our brother's keeper. Joshua has been warned, the people had been warned that this kind of sin would have collective consequences. And remember, Israel was to be a holy instrument. I mean, that's what they were when they entered Cain. You know, God gives this whole Levitical, you know, in, in, in these statements in Exodus about, you know, these people having bestiality and don't have sex with animals and all this crazy, sick stuff. Why? Because that's what was going on in Canaan. This is where they're going. God is saying, you better not do any of this stuff these guys are doing. And this place was ripe for judgment. And so Israel was to be this tool in God's hand for judgment. And back in chapter 5, Joshua had called on the people to consecrate themselves before they crossed into Canaan to do God's work in a new land. He said, consecrate yourselves. This is what God told him to do. Set yourself apart. And you and I, guys, the church is still called in the same way to do the same thing. The whole issue with the Corinthian church, when we read that letter, was that they had become so vile, they could no longer be God's instrument, his messenger to the world around them in their community, as a messenger of the gospel. And consequently, Paul writes 2 Corinthians 6.17, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. A conditional statement. Verse 18, And I will become a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. Guys, this is written to a church. To the Roman church, Paul writes in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You and I have been called to consecrate our lives, to set ourselves apart, not look like the rest of the world, not to fit in. And God's anger burned against his people in Canaan because they had made themselves useless to him through their sin. And I believe God's heart is burning towards the vast majority of what is called Christianity today due to tolerance of sin and lukewarm apathy and me-centered, self-focused indulgence all stemming from emphasis on seeker sensitivity with an arrogance and an ignoring of God's sensitivity. What offends God? What is his desires? What a stupid idea that came through the church years ago with the whole seeker-sensitive movement. This was never about us. You understand that, amen? It's always been about him. He should always be the center. It's what offends him. It's what he gets out of it that should move our hearts on Sunday mornings and midweek studies. And that has confused the world, guys, frankly. You know, and made the church ineffective in this dark Canaan that we live in, bringing the gospel to them. The gospel of what? The gospel is you are condemned. You know, we hear people all the time quoting John 3.16 and 3.17. It's so moronic. And, and, and I hear them all the time. Our island is the worst. Dude, we are bond with the prosperity message. And if it's not that, it's an all, it's all good, feel good surfer church mentality. You know, that attitude of, you know, well, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn. They don't read the next verse. He didn't have to come to condemn because verse 18 says what? You were already condemned. And the whole world needs to know that. Without Jesus Christ, you are condemned. You are going to hell. Bottom line. That's where the gospel starts, guys. It doesn't start with warm fuzzies and little teddy bear Christianity. It's some mix between like, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers Jesus and Barney Jesus. I love you, you love me. You know, all that. And that's not it. 
You stand condemned. You're going to hell. Your children are going to follow your leader, young man, if you have babies, and they're going to go to hell too. And they're going to burn there forever. Forever. And, 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 and then the idea that you must surrender to Jesus completely. You must repent from your sin and turn to him. Not just stop your pornography. Not just stop your drunkenness. Not just stop your anger and your lust and your bitterness and your gossiping. But you stop that and you turn and you pursue God. That's repentance. And the idea that we have to take up our cross and slay ourselves. We're going to talk about that more later. That's the gospel. And the world is totally confused because so few people are preaching it. And God's anger burned against Israel as I think it burns against the church. For in the midst of the battle at Jericho, one man was able to walk away unnoticed with a long robe of woven gold and silk, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, and no one stopped him. No one noticed. No one took opportunity to make sure it didn't happen because no one was on point. You, you, you almost wonder, you know, why didn't God just sovereignly orchestrate Achan's death? Why didn't he just strike the guy? Once again, guys, it clearly displays that God is holding you and I responsible as his people for the state of holiness and readiness of the body of Christ to carry out his plans in this dark world, exposing sin and exposing the wolves and exposing false teachers among the flock. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 13, Paul reminds a, a little lump of leaven leavens the whole lump. He says in verse 17, clear out the leaven. And he makes clear what he's saying. Verse 13, remove the wicked man. Do not tolerate him. 1 Corinthians 12, it reminds us that we're all part of one body. We, we are, you know, we, we, it, it's so crystal clear. You know, when you, you bust your foot open, your entire body is sick. If your kidneys don't function, do we have a doctor here? You're a doctor, right? Yeah, I just don't want to say anything stupid. So just, just pay, you know, I'm not a doctor. So when I say something ignorant, you know. But, you know, if, if your kidneys stop functioning, does everything else go on perfectly? No. You know, it, it, we often glorify parts of the body. You know, our, you know, if we say to somebody, what part of the body do you want to be? I want to be a big bicep muscle. You know, or, or I want to be the brain. I want to be the eyes that have vision. No one wants to be that other place that exits materials, right? But I tell you, you can live without a brain. I mean, with, not without a brain, excuse me. Often I've been accused of that. But you can live without your eyes you can live without your ears but let that other part stop functioning and you're finished brother i'm telling you there's no part of the body that when it's not doing what it's supposed to do doesn't trash the rest of the body and the deal is this we need to recognize that we are responsible for every part of the body and how it affects the rest of the body and quickly let's just look at the consequences when no one takes point first of all 36 men died 36 brothers among them husbands sons and fathers because it's in a book it doesn't mean much to us but imagine it being your brother imagine it being your son and it was unnecessary how many times do people walk away from church and their spiritual life dies due to sin in the church in chapter 2 Verses 9 and 11, Rahab the prostitute in Jericho told, Jericho told the spies that all of the mighty people of Jericho and Canaan were afraid. And the word she uses, she said, our hearts have melted in fear. Well, let's look at chapter 7, verse 5 through 8 real quick. It says, the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men, the Israelites, 
and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabaram and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. Both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over to the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? Guys, that's some heavy stuff. Verse 5, it says, God's people's hearts have melted. Think, it's the same words as was used of the unbelieving Canaanites, those in Jericho who had no connection to God. The same words. Reality had struck the people of God. We are not self-sufficient. We cannot be successful without God's presence with us. We cannot... Be successful in presumption or familiarity with God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells the church that same thing. Does the modern church recognize this? Do we even care? I mean, really. Guys, the Holy Spirit will not reside where there is sin or man-centered ministry. And I, and I honestly ask churches all the time, do we really care? Or is it good enough to have a church that functions without issues? Because there's a whole lot of churches that are just happy that everyone has meals together and we all get along and we, we love each other so much. And, and, and yet the Holy Spirit hasn't been in the church for years because there's sin in the church. And there's man-centered ministry and there's superstar, rock star pulpit guys. God, God's not going to take second to a man. We got this issue in our own movement. Verse 6 displays that the lack of a man on point resulting in ache and sin brought sorrow where there should have been joy. Look at the effect, though. I want you to see this as we finish up tonight. Look at the effect on leadership, on the point man. Remember chapter 6, verse 27? It said God was with Joshua. That's how chapter 6 ends. So God has not abandoned Joshua by any stretch. But look at Joshua in verse 7. This situation caused Joshua to lose his vision, lose sight that God was with him. Think, this, guys, this is Joshua, man. This is the guy speaking in verse 7 who says, Why did you bring us here across the Jordan just to destroy us? Guys, listen, when people in the house of God choose sin and the consequences that affect so many people, because no one's sin just affects them. Amen? We should know that by now. When we choose to sin and the ripples go out across a congregation and a community, leadership experiences a suffering that can be so disorientating. And this is Joshua, who now sounds like, he, he sounds like the very people who were ready to stone him back in numbers. And Joshua says, here at the end of verse 7, better if we had never entered the promised land. Does it sound familiar? Is this not what they said? Did you bring us out of Egypt into this desert to kill us, God? And he is the guy standing up and saying, no, let's go for it. And yet now one man's sin takes him down. He's basically, why, God? Dude, Joshua had forgot God's words to him back in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. The key to success was what? Thanks. Wow, that's great. This isn't TV, guys. You know, if I say something, it's okay to say, you know, at least make me feel like you're 
learning something. The key to success is obedience. Be careful to do all that is written. You know, Joshua should have simply asked the Lord, where is the disobedience? Amen? Where is the sin, Lord, that has brought this failure? That should have been his question. You see, because he had instruction. He had the word. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. You and I have the word, just like Joshua. He had the word. He was supposed to take it with him into Canaan. He gets into Canaan. The Lord says, hey, as long as you obey, you do all that you're commanded. You keep it in your mind. You keep it on your mouth. You will be successful. And now he hasn't been successful. And rather than saying, God, I remember what you told me, that if we were obedient, we'd be successful. Instead of saying to God, where's the sin? Where were we disobedient? He starts charging God. Why did you bring us here to destroy us? Guys, and if he had conversed with God before he sent the men into Ai in his overconfidence, God would have shown him they were not battle ready because God said he was with Joshua at the end of chapter 6. Verse 8, what can Joshua possibly tell this frightened multitude who has no clue as to what is going on and neither does Joshua? If victory was attributed to God's help, then defeat must come from God's decision not to help. Joshua has no clue why this has happened. You understand? He's been rocked. In chapter 7, verse 10, God basically tells Joshua, why have you reduced your leadership to this? I I didn't call you to this. You know my word. You know what I commanded. Why are you walling around in self-pity and accusation concerning my faithfulness? Guys, is that not where men of God end up when they're sinning in the camp? The church numbers start dwindling. Things start failing. God says to him, get up, get back on point. In verse 11, God says, The reason for this situation is that Israel has sinned. They have transgressed. They have taken things under the ban. And Joshua has no idea that it's only one man. That's the other thing, you see. He looks at the multitude and he wonders, who all does this involve? I tell you what, guys, I'm a pastor. And when there's sin in the church, it is heartbreaking. It is disconcerting. You lay in your bed at night and you think, dude, this guy just ripped me. My guys can tell you, our church is maybe, what, 80 people? I don't count, you know. And maybe 80 people. Summertime, it doubles sometimes because of the tourists. But my wife and I sat down one time and counted up the numbers, and we, we estimated somewhere close to if everyone that was there who's been there would be around 300 people. I live in an island of 3,000. It's not hard to run into all those people who have cut my throat in the one grocery store near my house on the one highway that runs up and down. And when people do stupid things, you lay in bed and you think, I wonder who else they're talking to. I wonder who else is who's looking to cut my throat this time. Who else was involved in this? Who else is saying these things? He looks at the multitude and he wonders who all is involved. And you look at verse 12. And it says, therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand. God is talking to them. Sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you. Listen, this is God talking, guys. 
This isn't Billy Rutledge. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Very conditional statement. You see that? Unless. Do you think that's not a New Testament concept? Because we're going to talk about that tomorrow. You're nuts. If if you're running around quoting Hebrews all the time, he'll never leave us or forsake us. I've got news for you. There's about 50,000 conditional statements in the New Testament. You and I are called to obedience. We're called to stand up for Jesus Christ. We look at the end of Revelation. It says the coward is one of those that ain't going to make it in. I'm here for nothing more to inspire you. If you hate my guts, fine. I'm going back to the island tomorrow afternoon. You won't see me for a long time. You can threaten him. He doesn't have to have me back. I don't really care. I serve one audience, guys, and it's not you. I love you. I'm stoked that you're here, but I've got one audience that matters to me, and that's the king of glory who is willing to save me and give me the honor of speaking his word. And at the end of the day, I'm going to tell you right now, look, man, God tells him, unless you deal with this, I am not with you anymore. There are churches who have huge properties. There's pastors or superstars on TV. They're writing books. You know, they don't even have to have the time to even write the silly books that they produce and put their names on. And the world is just wowed by them. And I don't believe the Lord is any more with them, you know, than he is the local Satanist or white witch. He says, conditionally, unless. It displays also that God's desire is to continue with his people. But that continuance is dependent upon the people's willingness to destroy the evil they have allowed in their midst. What a fearful statement by God to Joshua. I'm not going to be with you anymore. (laughs) He's already in Canaan, dude. There's no turning back. I'm not going to be with you anymore unless you do the hard thing and destroy the evil in your midst. And we're going to see tomorrow. We're going to continue on. God will expose Achan to Joshua. And if you read on, it is frightening. You know, Joshua is called to consecrate the people again. And then he's, he, he's told that, you know what, when I expose what this is all about, you're going to take this individual and you're going to burn him and his family and all he owns. Now, Joshua, go, go, go get a good night's rest. <laughs> We're going to do this tomorrow. Can you imagine? As you look out across the multitude, we'll talk about this again tomorrow, and you wonder, was it my friend? Have I held their children in my lap? Is there women involved? Is it a friend of my wife that I'll burn tomorrow? God gives this command in his order and there is no change. Here's your choice, Joshua. You will do the hard thing or I will leave. And he's saying the same thing to the church today. What do you want, Calvary Chapel Richmond, to be the biggest church, to have to get you a bigger building? I got news for you. Jesus Christ himself said that when I preach the gospel with absolute any, no human agenda, no bent motives, I, Jesus Christ, Lord and King of all, with perfection preach the gospel, not many will follow. It's a narrow road and not many will want it. So when I see a church exploding, even within our own movement, and it's huge and things are going off, I never go, wow, look how God's blessing. My first response is skepticism. I wonder what's really being preached. Now you may not agree with that, whatever. Jesus said not many are going to follow a message even when it's done perfect. So when I come here tonight, you know, I've preached to big crowds before and I've preached to little crowds like this. This is perfect. I preached Hope Fest in Richmond or uh, uh, Fredericksburg this year. I'll probably never get asked again, right? 
Because they all, all of this effort and bands and food and all this work they did. And I preached the cross, dude. You know how many people responded out of that whole crowd out there? One kid. I preached it. Take up your cross if you want to follow Jesus. You've got to love him more than even your own family. You have to give up everything. Would you consider the count? And then I finally said at the end, who would follow a Jesus like this? And one kid, I will. And I said, I'll take that right there. Listen, guys, God has called us to do the hard thing. He's calling you to get on point. And he says to Joshua, if you are unwilling to do this thing, I will not go with you anymore. I remind you before God gives the remedy to Joshua that so much of the time, guys, before we get into that tomorrow, people have an attitude that it's only the leadership, you know, a pastor, a worship leader, an elder that can bring this kind of cataclysmic devastation to God's people. But I remind you tonight as we close, Achan was a layman. He wasn't a superstar. He wasn't a leader. He was just a layperson. Yet his sin cost 36 families the lives of their loved ones. One layman's sin brought fear where there should have been joy and confidence. One layman's sin put the leader on his face, confused, losing vision, wondering how many of those behind him following his lead are involved in sin and conspiring to do evil. Listen, you have a point man in this church. It's your pastor. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the fact that you're called to be point man. But there are times and situations, you know, that you are to take the point. In your personal life, you're the point man. In your home, you're the point man. In this dark world, there's so few men willing to stand up and and speak truth because they're afraid of their reputation. They're afraid of what people are going to say. And you're called to be the point man for Jesus. Before we close tonight, you know what? This, I, I, I just want to give the opportunity. Maybe you've got some hidden sin in your life. Maybe you've got some issue that's going on. I don't like to start listing sins because, you know what, I do really good if I say, maybe your business isn't what it should be or, or maybe, you know, uh, you haven't been treating your wife properly. Guys will respond to that. But the minute I say, maybe you're wrestling with pornography, then no one wants to stand up, right? So I'll just, I'll just say, maybe there's just some sin in your life. And you've come all the way up to this night and you know you've been wrestling with this and you know your heart isn't right. Even if it's apathy, guys, because lukewarmness will keep you from going to heaven. You do realize that, amen? There's a whole lot of people sitting in church living for themselves, ticked off when the band didn't play the music they wanted, unliking guys like me who come and preach this kind of message. At the end of the day, they're sitting in church. It's all about me, me, me. Did church bless me today? 